0: Hello, friends. This is Doug Scheibel, and welcome once again to the Premature Bible Institute. Just want to thank you for coming this week. I think that this lesson is going to be especially a good one. I really have been excited going over it, thinking through what it is I wanted to share and how to share that in a way that we really grasp the implications of, of what's going on in this situation. Please be sure to tag a friend and let them know about this podcast. They can go to Uh, and click on the contact uh, tab at the top of the page and find out what they need to uh, find out. They can Google the Premature Bible Institute, Uh, just get on Google and do that. Or they can get on their favorite podcast, Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, Overcast, CastBox, whatever, and just uh, get on there and search for the Premature Bible Institute, and that should take them right to it. So thanks a lot for doing that for me. So, uh, that being said, let's uh, do just a little bit of a review of the last podcast. Uh, we talked about Cain and uh, what his response was to God's confrontation when God came and talked to him. Now, we remember uh, in the, he's already been confronted one time. That's when they brought their sacrifices uh, to God. Cain brought the best of his, let's just say the best of, his vegetables from the garden, some of the produce from there. And Abel brought uh, a lamb and had killed it and uh, offered that as a sacrifice. And God dealt with him on that. Uh, he said to Abel and his sacrifice, he accepted both the Abel and his sacrifice. And with Cain, he said he did not respect Cain or his offering. And so God asked him, he says, um, don't, you know, do what I've told you to do. And he says, no, I'll accept you. But if you don't, he says, sin lies at your door. And so we don't know what happened right after that, uh, but we do know the next event in the Bible that happened, and we don't know the span of time in between the two, and that is that Cain and Abel were out in a field somewhere, and they were talking, or they were discussing something. We don't know exactly what it was. My thoughts are, uh, and it, you know, I don't have a real scriptural basis for that. that, that maybe Abel was trying to convince Cain, listen, just listen to what God has to say. Uh, do what he tells you. And he says, everything will be all right. But you know, we, anybody who um, has friends, uh, some, we all have friends or we have children or parents or relatives who just will not listen. Uh, you want to tell them about the Lord. They just don't want any part of it. Well, that's kind of where Cain is at at this point. So what happens? They're out there in this field discussion, uh, discussing something and it says, And Cain rose up, and he killed his brother Abel. So Abel is dead, just plain dead. That's all there is to it. And so what happens? God comes and confronts uh, Cain a second time. and But he does it in a way that he always does. Remember what, how he did with um, uh, Adam and Eve in the garden? They said, Adam, where are you? Well, God knew where they were at. And he says, Well, we hid because we were naked. I said, well, who told you you were naked? And God knew that also. And when he asks these kind of questions, these rhetorical questions, he's trying to get people to admit their guilt uh, before him. And, um, and then he can deal with that. But they need to admit it. If it isn't, then they, their hearts get hardened. They, uh, their consequences are going to be worse uh, as a result of that. So God confronted Cain again. And so he comes up and he says, Cain, he says, where's your brother? And now God obviously knew where um, Ab- where Abel was at, that he was dead. I don't know if Cain even bothered to bury him or not, but whatever. Uh, and Cain responds in a way that is just to me, I-, I can't even believe that he did this. But Cain responds, he says, how should I know? You know, in other words, says, uh, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And so what he was doing was asking God a rhetorical question And I I just can't even believe that he did that, but he did. And so what he, like I said, literally, if you were to put it in today's terms or what the real intent of what he was saying was, he says, hey, how should I know? And what right do you have to ask me that question? That's what the implication of what he was saying, even though those aren't the actual words. But if I did that to my dad when I was a kid, if uh, I did something and I broke something and I tried to hide it, uh, and my dad would have said to me, he says, Where's my hammer? And if I looked at my dad and I says, "How should I know? Am I your? Uh, am I your shop foreman?" My dad, I would have woke up the following week and then sitting there thinking, "Man, I better, better not do that again." So it's uh, it's kind of like that, but he's doing this to God Himself and asking this type of a question. So uh, God confronted Cain. And as a result of that, he says, listen, he says, because of what you've done, he says, your brother's blood cries to me from the ground. And so God cursed the ground. He says, the ground will no longer yield its strength. So God curses the ground a second time. But the interesting thing is, and in Cain, what does he do? He goes on this pity party. And he says, oh, man, he says, now this, is, this judgment is more than I can bear. If I go out on the earth, people are going to look at me, they're going to kill me, and they're going to have all this. The thing that really gets me about this is he feared men more than he feared God. But you know what? That's the problem with mankind in general. That's why we do the things we do when we shouldn't. It's because we fear people. We fear what they think more than we fear what God thinks. And so that's what is happening here. He's fearing what, what other people might do to him, but he's not fearing at all what God's going to do to him. Uh, it's just, it does, it's not irrational, is it? Remember we talked about that? Sin causes us to think irrationally. So what happens now? Is this the end of the thing? Is what's going to go on now? And we talked about God continues his plan. Uh, Satan didn't win in heaven. He didn't win in the garden. He didn't win after the garden. And so what does he do? Even after he kills Abel, who is probably going to be the uh, the first, well, let me say this. Let me. I, I want to just stop here for just a second because this is a term that you're going to see, and it's the term firstborn. I need to explain a little bit, bit about what that means. <clears throat> and I learned this out in the tribe. The term firstborn isn't necessarily somebody who's born first, although usually it is. But the term firstborn is kind of an honorific title. It is the uh, it is the what they would call the person who carries on the family heritage, the family honor. The family land, uh, their their name, all those things. The person that carries on that name is would be considered. They would call him the fir, uh, the firstborn, and so they're the ones that carry on all that the the father has and owns and is. They're the ones. They're the representative of that family line. Now we don't see that much because of our American society here in America. We don't really quite understand that so well but if you get into other, if you did if you went back say a couple hundred years in american society you would understand that pre-revolutionary war times you would understand that and and it would make much more sense and in europe it really made a lot of sense in in medieval times and so on they understood that that the, the the firstborn was the one who ran the estate and then all of his siblings would live there also and be part of that they would benefit from it without having to have all the responsibility of the firstborn. So the firstborn carried on all the responsibility also. So anyway, but so um, Abel was going to be the firstborn and then Seth. Now God brings Seth along. And remember what Eve said? I have gotten a man from the Lord. Oh well, that's what she said about Cain. And then she thought maybe he was going to be the one to carry on the line. But Cain turned his back on God. And then Abel was probably going to be that one. And now she says, I've got, uh, Eve says that she has someone to replace Abel. Not Cain, but Abel. And so uh, Satan didn't win here. There was going to be that line that was going to be carried on. So now we're going to jump over a lot of years. Uh, We're not going to really do too much jumping, but I just want to explain how God was keeping this thing going. It wasn't stopping just because uh, somebody died or whatever. God always wins. Why? Because he's God. So Adam had a son, and his name was Seth. Now Abel was dead, so he and he didn't have any children, so he couldn't carry on the line. But Seth came along, and Seth had children. He had a son by the name of Enos. And Enos had a son by the name of Canaan. And Canaan had a son by the name of Mahalalel, And Mahalalel had a son by the name of Jared. And Jared had a son by the name of Enoch. And Enoch had a son by the name of Methuselah. And Methuselah had a son by the name of Lamech, or Lamech, however you want to pronounce that. And Lamech had a son by the name of Noah. Now, we all know those, some of those names, Enoch, Noah, uh, Methuselah, we've heard that. And Noah lived 500 years before he had uh, children. He had three sons. And so we'll talk about them here in just a minute. So this line is continuing on. Uh, but... Things were going on behind the scenes that we need to talk about. Now, the population of the earth was really increasing at this point. Now, you think about it. These people, some of them were living over 900 years. And they were, you can imagine how many children and things that they had during that time. And by the way, from the time of, um, of uh, when Adam and Eve uh, were created until the time of Noah is somewhere um, in the range of 1,100 years. Um, or somewhere in the, somewhere in the time of Noah, we had about 1100 years, um, give or take some time there. I'm just giving a general average. So there was a lot of time there. You think about that this is going back to the dark ages for us or to the Renaissance and think of how many children people could have had. And they were living a long time. So they could have had an, each family could have had an awful lot of children. So it wasn't an issue there, um, about the earth increasing more and more. So as a whole, these people that were being born during this time did not honor God. Um, it isn't that there wasn't anybody. It's just that as a whole, they weren't. Uh, they, were, they did not honor God. And it said the Bible says that they were given to immorality and they were just marrying. Now, when I say that, it almost sounds like I'm saying that marrying's bad. But let's talk about this a bit and we'll go as we go through some verses. So I want to read uh, Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Now it came to pass when men, began, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. So time was passing. Men began to multiply on the face of the earth. Obviously, men can't multiply if women don't multiply. He says, and daughters were born to them. Okay. So there's a statement that they're making there. Why? Now, why does he bring it up? He says, the sons of God, whoever that was. Now, there's a lot of debate on whether those were angels or whether they were real people. I tend to believe that they were real people. Uh, Otherwise, what's the point uh, of even bringing this up about daughters being born to them? The sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. Now, I just want to get on to that last part here and just a little bit and expound on that a little bit more because we'll come back to it. But um, they were given to immorality and they were given to marrying. So they wanted to marry as many of these as they could or have them as theirs, whatever. I think they looked at them as property more than anything. But we'll get back to that here in a minute. So what happens? God decides to send them a warning. And so in verse 3, it says this, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. For he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. So God was warning them, uh, and we'll see that as we go on here. He was giving them 120 years. He was telling them, in 120 years, I'm going to deal with this issue, uh, and you need to repent. And consequences uh, would come if they did not repent of their rebellion against God, or their rebellion towards him. So there would be consequences if they did not change their minds. If they did not change what they were thinking about, in other words, they didn't think it God owed the, or they owed God anything. Kind of like what Cain did. What what right do you have to tell me how to live? That type of a thing. So he wanted them. He wanted those people to agree with him that he was telling the truth. That's all that faith really is: is agreeing with God that He's telling the truth, and he wanted them to come to them to him like Abel did. You know. Not just with a proper sacrifice, but with a believing heart. That's what he wanted, and so he was telling them this. A hundred and twenty years, he's telling them this. But it also has a second meaning to it—the hundred and twenty years thing. Even though you don't notice it so much right then, it's kind of like what he did with Eve in the garden. It says, you know, he shall bruise, uh, uh, you shall bruise his head, but he shall bruise his heel. And even though she thought when she says, I've gotten a man from the Lord, maybe that's the initial uh, immediate meaning of what that says, but it had a long-term meaning attached with it also that uh, might not have been seen right off the bat. But the second thing here is that man would no longer have that long life like they they did. And so what was going to start happening is that people— we're going to start their lifespans were going to become less and less and less as time went on so that the average age would be around 120 years uh, for people. So, But we'll talk about that more as time goes on as we go through the Old Testament. So let me ask you this. All these people are turning their backs on the Lord. Is God wanting them to sin or is Satan? I mean, sometimes people think this is God's plan that they sin against him. I don't think it is. I think it's Satan's plan for them to sin against him. How do I know that? Let me read a verse to you. In Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, it says this, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die? And so, what he's doing—that's how he—that's how he views people. That's how he views his human race. Even though it's fallen, he doesn't want them to perish. God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And this is what he's telling them right there. That is a fulfillment of what he's saying. So he's telling them to do this. And so here is the question we ask: Who's going to win this battle? Is God or is Satan? Who's going to win this battle? You know, I'm sure that Satan all along, he's sitting there thinking, okay, here's the people. Here's how I can deal with it. I'll beat God in heaven. Oh, that didn't work. Okay. I'll beat him in the garden. Oh, that didn't work either. Okay. I'll beat him with Cain and Abel. Oh, that didn't work either. So now he's going to say, okay, the wickedness of man was great. They were, it was just, they were rotten to the core. I'm going to win this one. I think I've got it this time. I'm just about to win it. So then uh, I want to read a couple of verses in chapter 6 here, verses 5 and 11. Verse 5 says this, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In other words, these people didn't have good thoughts. They continually, day and night, thought of how bad they could be, what they could do that was against God, and didn't want any part of it. But then in verse 11, it also says this, The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So now you're seeing what he's talking about there about that 120 years. My uh, spirit, um, uh, let me go back here. I'm sorry, verses 1 and 2. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of man, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. I think what they were doing is they took advantage of the women. They took them and to make them wives. In other words, to make them their property. And so uh, that was really interesting. Someday I'll be able to tell you the story about how what happened with our tribal people when they were hearing this. I can't tell you right now, but one day I'll tell you about it. And it's going to be pretty impressive. So these people were rotten to the core. And they all had one thing in common. They were all descendants of Adam, every one of them. So what characteristics did they display to show that? Well, they were proud. They were self-centered and boastful. I mean, the wickedness of their heart was only evil continually. They didn't want to follow God. They wanted what other people had. They wanted other people's daughters, probably other people's wives, who knows, and everything. They were jealous and hateful to other people. There was violence all the time. They argued and fought all the time. They were cruel, and many of them were murderers. Boy, sounds just like the first kids, doesn't it? You know, well, the first kid, I should say. Murderers, they constantly lied and deceived one another. Uh, they were ruthless in their business practices. They wanted to take advantage. They wanted power. They wanted to control other people. They continually gossiped and said evil things about others behind their backs. And they were totally unrestrained in their sexual passions, they engaged in natural and unnatural relationships, but there is no relationship that is natural that is apart from God's design for it. Now you have to remember that, no matter what kind of relationship you think you should have or can have, only the ones that God sanctions are the ones that are are legitimate. Everything else is rebellion against God. It makes no difference who you are, what you are, what you think. It's God has the right to set the rules because he created us. Remember, back in the beginning, as the creator, he's the owner. Remember my tribal guy? You saw me make that canoe. Does my canoe tell me where to go? No. And as created people, we don't tell God what uh, what rules he should make. So that's what we want to think about. So um, reading verses 5 again in chapter 6, I'm going to also read verse 12. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. It was as bad as you could possibly imagine. You could not; It could not have been worse. There's nothing today that even compares with this time on the earth. So did God give them a chance to repent, to turn their backs from that? Well, there's some ways he did. First of all, he says he showed them who he was by his creation. You know, his eternal power and Godhead are seen by that which he's created. They could look in the heavens and they could see order and non-chaos and all the different things. The beauty, the symmetry, the colors, the light, everything that our senses can enjoy, it was there. It was signs of his handiwork were everywhere. Uh, but they were not thankful of that. They just used it for their own selfish desires, and they did not believe God. So, and he spoke to them through prophets. Now, we you'll see more about prophets later on, but there's a couple of them there. One is uh, Seth, uh, one of the descendants of, of uh, I'm sorry, one of Seth's descendants was one of God's prophets, and his name was Enoch and more we'll talk about we'll talk more about Enoch later on but Enoch was one of those and there were they and all through that time i'm sure that there were those in the line of of um, Seth all the way up to Noah that were warning people of what was going to happen so what was the warning what did god warn the people was going to happen and what did he tell them about he had already told them uh, that he was going that they that people would only be around for another 120 years but he didn't tell them why or what was going to happen. So how did this warning manifest itself? Well, he says it in verse 6 and 7 of chapter 6. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air. For I am sorry that I have made them. Now, think about what he's saying there. He's grieved that this has happened. He's sorry that that he made man. It isn't that he didn't know this was going ha- well, to happen. He, he did know, but it still grieved him. You know, a friend of mine said something one day, and I really appreciate it. His name's Dave, and I don't know whether he wants me to give him att- uh, uh, attribution for this because he may have got it from someone else, but I will we'll give him at least that this is not my original thought. He says, you know, he says, there's a saying out there that says, God hates the sin, but loves the sinner. And he said, you know, I don't know if I really care for that statement that much. He says, let me tell you how I look at it. He says, God hates the sin because of what it does to the sinner. And you know, that's true. God hates the sin because of what it does to the sinner, it turns him into a monster, it turns us. You know, every time I hear people say, "You know, well, they're good people." You know, everybody, we're not good. Uh, we're born sinners. We're born like Adam. We're born like he, uh, Cain. We're we're just all descendants of all of that. And so, even though we've had godly lines, every single person in that those that line that I talked about—Seth and Enoch and all that—and even all the way to Noah, Methuselah, all those. All of those people were born sinners. They were born outside of the garden. They are born separated from God. And God required that they come to him in the way that he uh, ascribed, prescribed. So now, here we go. He's God's going to destroy the earth. He's going to do it in about 120 years. So let me ask you this. Was Satan going to win this time? I mean, he corrupted the whole earth. It was a mess. And even though he did not win in heaven or in the garden or with Abel... Would he now have the ultimate victory? Would he finally sit there and say, "Ha, ha now I've got him. A whole earth is corrupted. There's nothing that's any good here. So would the promise of Genesis 3.15 about the deliver fail at this point? Well, there's two words that you always have to remember. And <laughs> no matter what the situation I always remember these. And the two words are this, but God. And that's the thing. But Noah, In verse 8 through 10, says, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. Well, let me say it back. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. And Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So here we have this situation. God wants the people, he wants everyone to repent. He's not willing that any should perish, and he wants them to repent. He doesn't want them. Remember the scripture I remember I uh, did uh, just read up there. Um, let me get back here. Um, sorry. Oh, as I live in Ezekiel thirty-three eleven, as I live says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die? And see, God wants them to live. But he's making an opportunity here. He's letting them know ahead of time that there's going to be a destruction. But now he's got somebody here that he's going to deal with, and his name is Noah. And Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And he has this genealogy. But it does say this about Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. And Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. What about Noah? Wasn't he a sinner like everybody else? Of course he was. Didn't he receive the same? I'm sorry. Didn't he receive the same death sentence that everybody else is going to have? Of course. So why did Noah find grace in the eyes of the Lord? And there's a simple reason. Noah believed God. He was like Adam, Abel, Seth, Enos, Canaan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah and Lamech, his father. Noah was like them. They believed God. So how was Noah going to be able to continue the line of the Deliverer if God was going to destroy the earth? That's the thing I want to talk about. This is really exciting to me. And I just want you to understand this. this. There's a lot of debate about this these days. You have to decide whether you want to believe God or believe man. I choose to believe God. I make no bones about it. I'm not ashamed of it in any way, shape, or form. And uh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to read this without getting through it. This is a really emotional passage to me. Genesis chapter 6, verses 13 through 21. And God said to Noah, "The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and outside with pitch." And this is how you should make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, which is about 450 feet. Its width 50 cubits, which is about 75 feet. And its height 30 cubits, which is about 45 feet. You shall make a window for the ark, and you shall finish it to a cubit from above. And set the door of the ark in its side. You should make it with lower, second, and third decks. And behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth, to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And every living thing of all flesh you shall bring in, and you shall bring, uh, I'm sorry, and of every living thing, of all flesh you shall bring in two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you they shall be male and female of the birds after their kind of the animals after their kind and of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind two of every kind will come to you and keep them alive uh, to keep them alive and you shall take for yourself of all food that is eaten and you shall gather to yourself and it shall be food for you and for them so in other words, God says, okay, I'm going to provide an escape. Noah, here's what I want you to do. You're going to build this ark. Now, some of you may know about this, some of you may not. But you can get on like uh, the website for um, Answers in Genesis is one thing. And they have built a full-scale replica of the ark out in Cincinnati. Uh, in uh, Ohio, in the, here in the United States. And you can go see this thing so you can get a, a realistic view of how big this thing really is. And you, they'll, they they tried to, as much as they could, build it exactly according to the pattern, which is here. Now, obviously, we weren't there. We didn't see exactly what we look like. But we do have the general idea and most of that stuff. So if you go and see that, I'm telling you it will be an eye-opener for you. But there's some things in here that we need to look at. God is getting ready to destroy the earth, every living thing that's on the face of the earth. So you know, in in a lot of um, our studies today, people will say, "Well, that was just a local flood; it wasn't a universal flood." Well, but the thing about was it say, "I will, I myself am bringing flood waters on the earth to destroy from under heaven." Now, is under heaven just in one spot on the earth? No, it's the whole earth, all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. So this is, I mean, I don't know how it could be any simpler the way it said. Either God did this or he didn't. And we'll find out, did he do this or not? And so God is saying, I'm going to destroy everything, but here's what I'm going to do. I am going to save a remnant. I'm going to save you and your family and your sons and their wives and These animals on the earth, I want you to bring them there or want them to come to the ark, build this ark. We're going to put it in there, and then I'm going to destroy the earth. So um, this is what he's saying he's going to do. Now, the people can either choose to believe him or not. So for this whole time while he's building the ark, the people are looking at this, and they're wondering, what in the world is this going to do? There's never been a flood on the earth up to this point. They've never even seen rain at this point. Uh, the earth had not had any rain up to this point so they're build- he's building this big old giant ark wherever he's building that He'd probably if it was me I'd be building it up in the woods because if it's going to cover the whole earth there's no reason to build it down at the ocean just build it wherever the wood is at but let's just say he's building this ark and what are the people thinking the whole time so what's that knucklehead doing up there he's out there building this he calls it an ark or calls it a big boat or whatever but it sure is big what in the world is that for that doesn't even make sense and so he's doing all this. And so the people are sitting there watching this, probably making fun of him. We know that they did. Uh, and he's, but he's telling him, he says, Noah, this is going to happen. Here's what you need to do. Build it this way and then bring it in this way. And I want you to do it. Now, let me ask you something. Noah's getting ready to build this ark. Do you think Noah is sitting there saying, you know, Lord, uh, I know you've never done a flood before, have you? So how do you know how to build this ark? Do you think he said something like that? Of course not. And Noah didn't know how what was going to happen, what this was going to be like. But let me go back to an earlier question. Did God allow Adam and Eve to design their own clothing? Did God allow Cain and Abel to decide what type of sacrifice to bring to him? So do you think God was going to allow Noah to design the ark? No, he wasn't. He was going to say, This is what I want you to do. And there's one other thing in there on that ark that I want you to be really cognizant of, uh, to be, really be thinking about, and it's this. Remember what he said he put in the side there? He said, I want you to put the door in the side of the ark. That's going to be an important key element as time goes on. So this one door. And he says there in 616, You shall set the door of the ark in its side. It has a very key meaning to it. So in this lesson, now God's deciding this is what he said he's going to do. And he's, I'm sure that God, that, well, we know that Noah was telling the people what was going to happen. And they had 120 years to repent from this. And so what's going to happen? That's the next thing we want to talk about. So next lesson, we'll discuss whether God kept his promise or not. Take care. Have a good week. Thank you all for listening to this. Bye.